Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Hello, thanks for joining in or listening or downloading or streaming, however else you are hearing my voice right now. This is Nature Biotech's First Rounders podcast. My name is Brady Huggett. I'm the host, and the guest today is William Rudder, otherwise known as, as Bill Rudder. Bill is the CEO and chairman of Synergenics. Synergenics is uh, sort of an umbrella company that oversees uh, a handful of biotech startups that Bill is helping um, guide through their early years. But Bill is also a founder of Chiron, was a founder of Chiron, and he played a large role in getting the University of California at San Francisco um, into the life science powerhouse that it is today. So we talked for a long time, maybe um, longer than I think you'd like your podcast to be. So I edited this down a little, um, which means some of Bill's background I had to take out. So if you're looking for more information on um, Bill's schooling, uh, his early research, go to our blog, Trade Secrets, which you can find on the homepage of Nature Biotechnology, and look for the post on October 20th. I put up some links to biography, um, some information about Bill that just sort of round this podcast out. In the meantime, listen up. Here's your first rounders podcast with Bill Rudder. So I, I was coming in. You're, we're not close. We're not far from the Rudder Center, are we? It's that building right there. Right there. When did that go in? About um, a little more than 10 years ago. Oh, it's been a while. I had a, I had a role in developing this campus, uh, which is a story in itself, and, and that's more or less the result. A, a result of that. Yeah, so I want to talk about that because that's, it seemed like um, you know, what, you, what you did at UCSF was help bring... Uh, multidisciplinary research together well let's start it well, is a story yeah let's start with um let's start way back in the in the beginning <clears throat> okay so yeah. I, I know you were you grew up in in idaho is that correct true enough yeah and were you always i was born in a, a little city of 2700 people in southern idaho malad is that right malad malad tw- that's As the name uh, implies there was a, a little river which was sometimes polluted. With what? There was part of the uh, trail going to Texas for cattle movement. And uh, my grandfather um, homesteaded there on my mother's side. My father immigrated, eventually lived in the same town. And um, 
<clears throat> so I was lucky enough to have a, a good set of parents who didn't mind me leaving instead of staying in that environment, and I was quite happy to leave. You were, okay. <laughs> uh, but so your grandfather on your mother's side homesteaded. He, he was obviously an immigrant as well. Yes, his, uh, he, he immigrated from, or perhaps his, not he himself, but his parents immigrated from London, uh, from England, and my father came from England, and my, my mother, other side of my mother's branch came from Switzerland. So there's... They're both immigrant families. And then they met in Milan. They met, they met uh, externally, but he, he then moved to Milan uh, to join her. Oh, really? Where did they meet? They met in the, uh, the middle part of the country. He was there on a mission of, for the Mormon church, uh-huh. and she as well. Okay, so you're in this tiny town, 2,700 people. Uh, you want out, it sounds like. You want to go do something beyond Malad. And your parents encourage that? Well, yeah, I, yes. I mean, the, the business of, of Malad was farming. My father was not a farmer, so he ended up being uh, uh, head of a small grocery store. Uh-huh. And uh, it was uh, a very nice personal relationship with him and people in the town. Um, but my interest was not in farming, nor in working for J.C. Penney, nor in being my f- grandfather's attorney. So I was lucky enough to be able to get out of town. So what was your interest at that point? Well, clearly it had something to do with um, with education. Well, intriguingly, my, my grandfather was a member of the Bengal Lancers. He was a British Army officer, and he talked to me about this, uh, this unusual uh, group of remarkable um, tropical diseases. And he intrigued me with the School of Tropical Medicine in Calcutta. After these exotic descriptions, it's not surprising I was interested. And uh, for a long time, I wanted to go to the, tropical, uh, the School of Tropical Medicine in Calcutta. Uh-huh. But it did interest me at that time in protozoology and higher organisms that lived in ponds and so on. And so I did a little bit of work there. I graduated early from uh, high school. Did spent and and spent a year, uh, and then went into the navy. Well, you spent a year at BYU. Is that right? I did. And then, so you can correct me where I'm wrong, but you left BYU, lied about your age to join the Navy? Uh, I did. What was the reasoning there? Well, everybody was going into the Navy or Army. Uh-huh. And fundamentally, I felt it was a thing to do. Yeah. So it was possible in, the, in those days. I, it was only a f- few months. Oh, it was a small lie is what you're saying. Not, yeah. It was not a big lie. <laughs> yeah. um, but you're in the Navy, and World War II is ongoing, right? Yeah, World War II. So what did you serve? Were you a naval pilot, or, or what were you? No, I, I just got into, uh, the, first of all, after boot camp, uh-huh. I had two options to get into, uh, to become an officer, or in fact to get out. And it was clear that the war was ending. Oh. And it was also clear that I wouldn't have lasted very long in the Navy because I was not so 
I was not so mature as to be able to to lead a, to lead a disciplined life. It was so damn boring. <laughs> <laughs> a disciplined life was boring. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Well, in the Navy sense. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm pretty disciplined now, but not not then, and certainly not in the Navy. It became a game. I had a deal going so that I could tell the people in boot camp that I was in the officer's mess and tell the officer's mess I was in boot camp. Then I could go in Chicago. (laughs) So you'd leave base, you're saying, and go into Chicago, right? Right. In Great Lakes. Uh, And so it it just became obvious that uh, it it was not the place for me. Right. And so I didn't go to officer's training school. And I eventually ended up in Cleveland. I traveled around a lot on mats. What does that mean? Uh, it's military air transport. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. So, term. and then so then you went to Harvard. Was I, that part of the GI Bill? It was, but I was admitted before. It was an unusual circumstance when I was trying to figure out places I wanted to go. Uh, Columbia, Stanford, and Harvard were the ones. Luckily, I had a scholarship in the, and the GI Bill, and and uh, Harvard opened my mind to lots of things. Uh, certainly, science was amongst them. I grew up a lot there. In those, what, three years or however long you were at Harvard? Yeah, I, I finished in a little bit less than three. I think I partook a lot of Harvard's diversity. For example... I was walking to chemistry class one day at a near, a, I don't know whether you know the, the campus at Harvard. A little, yeah, a little bit. I was walking by Severe Hall, and, and there was Robert Frost, uh, you know, giving a small seminar. Uh-huh. So who could miss that? So I went and listened to the seminar. And then E. Power Biggs on another in the Germanic Museum had a wonderful concert in the afternoon. I I tried to uh, to, to make all of those. I I mean, um, there were a wonderful series on the meaning of meaning that in fact and impacted me a lot. So it was a really a place of. Um, sampling different aspects of human endeavor practiced at a high level. So it really opened your mind, sort of, it sounded like, expanded yes. your mind. Yeah. And then you, you applied to Harvard Medical School and you were accepted, but you, you went back to Idaho, I think. No, I, I, uh, I graduated in the middle of the year, uh-huh. so I was planning to go to medical school in the mm-hmm. fall. And I went back in the middle of the year in January, and my cousin was in medical school, uh, as was her uh, fiance at the time, and so I began attending those classes. This is at Utah, at in Utah, Salt Lake City, right? University of Utah. Mm-hmm. And also, I began doing some work with a person who was important to me, named uh, Garth Hansen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but let me ask you this: it, while this is going on, at, at what point does UCSF come to you and try to recruit I'll, you? I'll come back in just a second. Okay, I was doing. I was working on embryology and I was working on the polymerases and I had great stuff going on. On the chemical side, on uh, beginning to understand the pancreatic differentiation. Then all of a sudden, unannounced, came Holly Smith uh, from UCSF 
and a dean and the head of surgery, Bert Dumphy. Uh, so they offered me this job at UCSF was a second-rate school, admittedly, but those guys were first-rate. The guys who offered you the position, yeah. And they basically had come, had been transplanted from uh, from Harvard, uh, and we're going to transform this school. You know, I was certainly intrigued, but I felt this was not for me. I was too much involved, and I really enjoyed what I was doing. Yeah, you were happy is what you're saying. You I was happy really there. happy personally. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, I'd split from my wife, but I was quite happy personally. And uh, uh, so I said no, and they came back another twice. And like several other people who've been offered this job, you know, they were on to the next person. They must have offered to every knowledgeable person. <laughs> could possibly take this damn job. I had gone down to visit this place, and it was quite depressing. Why, the facilities were depressing? The facilities were depressing, but the place was also depressing. The department itself was, there was one single person who had a program, and he was arrogant, exclusive, exclusionary, Mm -hmm. At the same time, I had an offer to go to Stanford, and I really did like Stanford. Yeah. And I was also approached by Harvard, and I didn't proceed. And then after three times saying no, I began thinking, what about my future career? Where is this all taking me? What impact did I want to make? And then I began looking at the assets of UCSF. So at that time, the department chairman controlled the budget, controlled the faculty. Mm -hmm. They had space. They had Department of Biophysics and Biology, Physics, and Mathematics all joined. Yeah, those things appealed to you. Uh, Well, yeah, scope. So I still felt, as a result of this early interest, that what one needed was in a focus on eventually human biology or at least eukaryotic biology, mm-hmm. not bacteria. Mm-hmm. And this was being done nowhere. And it was clear that in this case, uh, I had carte blanche. So I wake up, woke up in a cold sweat, and I, you know, after having mused about it for some time, and I decided, you know, Maybe I should really think about taking this job. After turning it down three times. So I called Holly then. By that time, uh, after three times, he... They'd moved on. He he hadn't moved on quite, but probably he had. But he said, no negotiation (laughs) on anything. You either come or you don't come. Did it. I said, well, whatever the salary is, the salary is, it's it. I didn't care about that anyway, and uh, and so I picked up picked up my bags and came in 1968. And so while while you're here, you, you sort of bring the reputation of UCSF around. You bring a lot of people who um, are collaborative. The lab becomes quite collaborative, from what I understand. And then biotech sort of grows up around you almost, right? I mean, Genentech was was born out of your lab, for instance. Well, so, yeah, that's, that all came. 
with an opening of uh, of the group that is fundamentally because biochemistry and biophysics was the core, we began to integrate all the scientists. Mm -hmm. So the people in microbiology, including Herb Boyer, were part of our team. And we began then to organize all the basic sciences to try to recruit good people and so on and so on. And uh, my first job here was to more or less move the people who are in the department out, honestly, because mm. um, they were all just not the kind of people we wanted to have to focus on these themes. I mean, was that easy to do? How difficult was that? It's not, not, it's not easy to do, and it was my, one of my most challenging times. But I had to find jobs for them, and, and with some degree of Sympathy. So you would approach them and say, the lab is moving in a different, the school is moving in a different direction. You might consider doing your research at University X, like that? Yes. Uh, I, I used every kind of device, uh, including, you know, what they were doing, the record that they had, uh, the fact that they really would be out of place. There, was, there were opportunities elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I kept one person, the major... Group, I just we just moved to some other place in the school. Oh, they didn't necessarily leave the school; they just left your that, area. That, well, everybody moved out except that one group uh-huh. that, that moved into that area, and uh, that left territory. And that was important because you know you have to have an integrated spirit. And uh, part of the good fortune I had was that Gordon Tompkins. Uh, who was at the NIH and a tremendously interesting and talented fellow, extremely collegial and uh, um, interactive. He was an MD. So fundamentally, uh, Gordon, Gordon was the head of a group at NIH, which still exists, maybe one of the very best people at, at, at NIH. He, he, he is a musician, he used to play, he played with uh, Jazz bands at the same time he's going to medical school. Uh-huh. Unusual fellow, and he was a guy who kind of had a far-sighted vision, but his real talent was interacting with other people. And no matter where you'd go around the world, you say, "Gordon, oh yeah, he's my best friend." Yeah, and he did a lot in the school to bring to consolidate this interest between the two departments. So we had a very different situation than. Stanford, where Arthur segregated his department and many of the other departments, that couldn't happen in UCSF. We had to make joint appointments to bring the level of the, all the departments up and to bring science to... to uh, basically, our mission was to make it work for humans. So we began recruiting people with diverse talents but with the general idea that 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 these were not that we didn't work in isolation, mm-hmm. we had our own projects, but also collaborated. We were um, not rank conscious; it was a meritocracy, and we were totally open. Then it became obvious we we wanted the group to focus then on one or another aspect of things that would yield uh, an insight into higher organism, organismic uh, biology, especially human biology. 
as luck would have it again, there was a lot of interaction with, uh, with Herb, who was re- working on restriction enzymes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, the whole group would get together at least once a week, most often in noon times. So we had, uh, it was an intense place, even though it was <laughs> terrible, terrible facilities. There was a lot of it spree, and uh, uh, the Boericone experiments worked. Mm-hmm. Already, we were in a position to take advantage of that because I began to recruit people who knew not only the, not just genetics but the de- details of genetics. At that time, why there was a lot of focus on well, besides transcription, uh, which I was dealing with on all the. Uh, nucleic acid uh, issues, et cetera. And, and we began to recruit people with different um, specialties. And that turned out to be fortuitously a good thing to do. After that discovery, then uh, Herb had his talks with, with founding Genentech, mm-hmm. and he and Bob came in to see me. It's Bob Swanson. Bob Swanson. First, he came along, said, asked, well, my idea about whether he should start, you know, in a company. And I encouraged him. In fact, Herb, he said, I said uh, that I've always wanted to start a company, which might have been the case. I don't know whether I did or not. But as a result of my experience with Abbott, why, I know I know a, a lot of things that I would have done differently than they did. Mm-hmm. But it became obvious that, that we, you have to organize in a case where you're trying to deal uh, with something as complex as biology and then using technologies. It's all multiple technologies, and you have to have all of these things. So we had the feature that um, I had control of the budget. And uh, as opportunities came, I could use the budget independently. So then you probably know about the insulin uh, cloning race, mm-hmm. of course, because I'd already studied insulin in the development of the pancreas. Right. I knew the people who were in in that game, and so we had to have a source of insulin. There were various cell systems that made small amounts of insulin, and among them was a group in in Boston mm-hmm. that I knew well. And so I called them up, and we agreed to collaborate. In two weeks, they called me back up and said, "I, I, I can't." collaborate with you. I got to do it with Wally Gilbert. So we are eventually then restricted to using the pancreas itself. Well, that's, that's, that was a um, tremendous problem because, as you know, pancreas makes lots of degradative enzymes, and among them RNAs. Mm-hmm. And the idea of cloning something in, in, in an environment that is rich in RNAs, is da- it's impossible. It's daunting. So we tried various approaches to that. In fact, in some fish, it turns out the islets are supposed to exist on the mesentery of the gut, aside from the pancreas. That occurs in the anglerfish. So at one time, we were the, the biggest users of, of, the, of the anglerfish or, or Atlantic fish. So we had all the fishermen on the, uh, in the eastern part of the Atlantic catching the anglerfish and then stripping out the islets. Well, it turns out that 
it's true that the islets are there, but they have a, a small rim uh, containing the rest of the degradative enzymes. Totally impossible. So we had several routes of investigation, and one of them was to simply kill the enzyme, RNAs, and eventually that worked by a strategy of basically unfolding the protein uh, so decisively that it couldn't work. And that paper is the most cited paper in biochemistry over 40 years or something like that. Because everybody used it. Once you could eliminate the RNAs, then lots of other tissues became available. And, of course, that was the secret to, to the cloning. This got you, yeah, so this got you a lot of commercial uh, interest, if I remember correctly, when that paper came out. Well, yeah, once the cloning occurred, you know, to tell the truth, the commercial aspects of it had no interest to me, and I didn't even think of it in these terms because we were focused on the narrow details of the understanding uh, of, of the gene itself and the expression of the gene and the embryological circumstances. It leads me to this question, though. I could not figure out if Chiron was founded on the goal of hepatitis B, like a hepatitis B vaccine. I'll tell you the story. So anyway, as soon as the insulin gene cloning went on, we suddenly had visitors from all the companies making insulin, and among them... Eli Lilly, mm-hmm. and also a, a company from uh, uh, Denmark, Nordisk. Yeah. Which, they had a re- big research organization, and I knew them independently, when, and we established a, a sort of, they, they paid attention to us. Well, during the cloning, the regulations were ill-defined. There was a the NIH had decided they had to regulate this. There was all this issue of danger, which happens whenever there's something novel coming on, especially mm-hmm. in biology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my former professor at at Stanford was among the group that wanted to have legal regulation. During the cloning process, we'd, of course, waited for approval of the group in Washington and got verbal approval which is basically the way it was communicated at that time. So we went ahead and did the cloning and got, uh, got the insulin gene. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out, a month and a half later, in a meeting, it turned out th- that they had set up another, sta- another group, a review group, the ultimate group. And fundamentally, we hadn't gotten approval for the ultimate group. I see. So I called uh, Hans Stetten, who was the chief scientist at NIH. At that time, there was really a lot of public debate on danger. And as you know, there was, my professors at Harvard were against it, and friends there wanted regulation, uh, severe regulation. So I talked to Hans Stetten, and I said, uh, what, what would happen, you know, if, if... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. someone would carry out experiments uh, during this transition, I explained exactly. So he knew what was going on. And he said, well, we're going to get laws. And he encouraged me to just not report it. Right. And I didn't. Then later, of course, because everybody knew, there's uh, an article coming out in, I think it was Science, in which this was reported. And, uh, and then we were called uh, in front of a committee, NIH was supposed to support us, her boy and I, yep. went to the meeting. And uh, so they had a number of uh, witnesses, including Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead came in with a big drape cloak, and she had this uh, shepherd's uh, stick. Which staff? A staff? So it's a shepherd's staff coming in, and she was pounded on the ground. And, and she said, you know, these people are saying that, that this is... Um, not dangerous, I'm here to tell you that it's dangerous to society and so on and so on. Adlai Stevenson was oh my Lord. eating this up and, and, and his other compatriot from Arizona I've, and the guys from the NIH left. They left the, the room. As soon as all this happened, oh, they man. left the room and they were not going to say anything. So we were left holding the bag and it looked like, you know, that we were... You rogues. Uh, we, we were carrying out something illegal all the efforts then to basically keep this an open system uh, for, for investigation uh, were in the balance. So I became interested in prevention. I mean, uh, for a demonstration of, of the utility of this technology. And because of my work at Abbott, I was familiar with hepatitis B because... I'd helped start the diagnostic pro- program there. Diagnosis of hepatitis B was a big issue. I knew uh, the challenge. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, so, uh, to me, that was a clear-cut case. Hepatitis B was the smallest human virus at the time. It could be sequenced by methods that were available to us. So, uh, I had a long-term collaborator who is, by that time, he was a colleague. Has, Pablo was also with me at Chiron. So I, I decided that was the shortest route. And I called up um, another friend, Roy Vagelos, yep. who had gone to Merck. I was talking to him about insulin and about these methodologies. And he described a project uh, with hepatitis B. Uh, they were 
they were essentially purifying, turns out in hepatitis B, patients accumulate particles which are non-infectious, mm -hmm. so-called Dane particles. And they were making a vaccine based on those particles. Well, that wasn't a long-term solution. It was a dangerous solution. And you can imagine you have to get totally purified, right. one from the other. But nevertheless, they were committed to it. And it looked like just the right project. So we established a collaborative project before Chiron. Oh, I didn't know that. And um, so anyway, that started another race with, with, with Wally. Uh, we began working on the cloning and eventually got, uh, got the virus. By that time, all kinds of people were interested in biotechnology. There was a lot of commercial interests, company interests, and so on. I hadn't, I decided that I was, I was very much interested and I became a, a consultant for Amgen. Mm -hmm. But then uh, it became obvious that uh, uh, we had to move rapidly. I had not wanted to leave the university and I tried to establish, in fact, I set up a foundation, a nonprofit foundation to sort of develop this technology. It became obvious that it was impractical. Couldn't pay salaries, they didn't have any space, they didn't have any budget, I was not going to get any budget, it's just totally impractical. Um, but this became immediately obvious when I went to this meeting and I heard other people getting into this game rapidly. It was in Washington. And uh, I saw all the attorneys and investment bankers and companies being started. And I called Roy up that afternoon. I said, Roy, uh, we, we have to talk. Our hepatitis B project is being parsed out to everybody you, you can imagine. So he said, come on down. So I went to see him. And I said, uh, we, we've got to move the project outside the university. Didn't know exactly in which way, uh, but he agreed. After a very short time, we began looking projects in uh, the various places. But then in my lab, I had, besides insulin, I had hepatitis B and then all these uh, projects on nerve growth factor and IGF-1 and things that obviously could affect human biology. And uh, I talked to the guys at Amgen and said, you know, um, uh, while they were trying to make indigo and a whole bunch of other stuff, I said, uh, I've got to go on with my own projects. If you want to work with, uh, with me and establish a lab, I can't be, uh, can't be down there. It'll be up here. And, and so George then began trying to get a, uh, a lab up here. And by the way, before that, I'd, I'd suggested that either Ed Penhode or, or Pablo would be great research directors mm -hmm. for Amgen, and they would have been. And so George was trying to recruit them as well. And so, well, it came right down to the point that in order to make it work, I had, I had to have a project here 
I had the initial, Merck decided they can they would fund the project How externally. That got it started, and then I decided to just bring in those three guys because I knew Ed would be good in projecting. He was a wonderful teacher, mm-hmm. very smart fellow. Pablo and I knew everything uh, uh, about each other, more or less. And uh, so we just moved, and that's how it got started. It's 81, 1981? 1981. Yep. And we had then uh, one infusion of capital only, one million, from John Deliage. Mm-hmm. John Deliage, French person, I had a very good French person in my my lab with whom I'd collaborated again for a t- dozen years. And John Daliage kept coming and asked me, as lots of people did, if you want to set up your company, you would do this. Yep. So at that time, I decided, okay, we'll do it. And I met with with, uh, with him and then his other partners in Boston. It was a Boston group. And then we, we set it up. We also had previously set up a small company to make nucleic acids. And of course, wanted to move this in into the company itself at, at an appropriate time. And um, uh, then a transition came. Yeah, we had hepatitis B. We had insulin going in uh, in yeast. We had these other projects. So not bad in a year. Yeah. So I, I go to Craig Burr, who is the key guy, and I said, okay, we had the understanding that if we need more money, you're going to provide it, uh, you know, on, under very favorable terms. So instead, he provided, he, he wanted a draconian terms. I said, well, uh, I'm going to have nothing more to do with you. You're not living up to your word. I don't you know, we're finished. Is this why? So, so Chiron went public in '83. Is this why? Ah, so you went public instead. Well, it was partly why. But, and we were in, after that. We were in desperate situation. Literally, we were down to the point where we had a couple months cash. And then I went to a meeting in in Washington, another meeting in Washington, and who should show up? The research director of an aeronautics company. And this crazy company, they were into cement, dye stuffs, aluminum, and they wanted to get into ag bio. So aside from what appeared to be the illogic of it all, mm-hmm. diversity was their game. Why, why choose us? We're yeah. not an ag company. Right, right. Well, they wanted to choose us uh, so we could help choose another company. So the price was right, definitely, and we got got some money into the company. Mm-hmm. That provided the interim capital, and then we went uh, we went public because there was an opportunity and to do it, yeah. And we had good stuff, and then the so rest. From there, you you um, sequenced the HIV genome, right? And then Chiron also um, discovered the hepatitis C virus and sequenced that as well. Yeah, I mean, those are, those are major contributions. Yeah, well, the general strategy of the company that we set up 
when we at the outset was okay we have a, a, a science going on we have a science um, engine uh-huh. and hepatitis B really represented then an approach to vaccinology right at that time vaccinology was was considered to be on a, on its way out because of polio. So by using recombinant DNA, we could eliminate all chances of infection. Mm-hmm. So we said, aha, we, if we can do it with hepatitis B, we ought to be able to do it with whatever. Then this same kind of research gave us materials to do diagnostics and therapeutics. So there was a three-legged stool, and the business proposition was essentially to establish relationships with companies who had no interest in going to the market or essentially a research organization. I see. And in that context, we could do uh, on a contractual basis. And the general idea that we had and kept to was a 50-50 deal. Every one of these people said, okay, what about 59, 49, whatever it is. No. For a small company, I said, first of all, you have to come to an agreement, so 50-50 is the way. Second of all, you have to get board approval, so we have to get sort of a meeting of the minds. We'll be good partners, but we're, we've got to have an equal say. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and then we began finding partners, and amongst them was Siba Geigy, also J and J, and so on. And C- yes, Siba Geigy being the big one. I mean, they they took a forty nine percent stake through that collaboration, which was sort of transformative for Chiron. Yeah, was the one that was totally transformative with uh, with Chiron, and in a sense, it provided in each one of those areas. We, we first got a uh, got a collaboration on vaccines, uh-huh. from which we developed the vaccine business. They had a diagnostics business which was shaky, and fundamentally I, they were trying to get rid of it. We had a diagnostic business, and, and with these uh, new tests, that's where HCV became tremendously important and an industry changer mm-hmm. in this field. So these things work well, and then therapeutics came on the side. Um, so you're absolutely right. I mean, we we had these projects with hepatitis C being, I'd say, the most unusual because that was another one of these big races. Right. It was kind of the tip of the iceberg. But it was similar with HIV. I mean, you know, getting into molecular biology with HIV. So in infectious disease, we kind of were at the forefront in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of my experience in diagnostics at Abbott Laboratories, why I knew the value of diagnostics and how you could make a game changer. So by having a a product that everyone has to have, you empower the rest of the repertoire. So, so then this opportunity with Siba uh, Geigy came. We had originally started with IGF-1 with them, and uh, uh, 
we had a great program, and in that in that case, we sought and got fifty one forty nine. Right. So you kept control of the company, but they so had a huge we stake control in it. Of the company. Yeah. Yeah. But that did lead eventually. Sibagaygi becomes Novartis. Right. Novartis eventually. Yeah. You're shaking your head. No, you you did not like that. The, the thing we had never anticipated that a big company like that would be bought out. It was, you know, where every one of these things were so huge, nothing would be possible. Well, so when it was brought out and Novartis happened and I was on the board, everything stopped. Our degrees of freedom changed. The attitude of the company to us changed. We had ways that would be, would have been great. For example, I had a a deal with uh, an agreement with Roche to combine their diagnostics with our diagnostics. Nevada said no. Totally, totally dominate the industry in a very productive way. And Daniel said, a deal with Roche? Are you kidding me? So it was that kind of a relationship. He, he basically felt that, uh, that we had taken the... Uh, um, Sibagaygi uh, for, for, for it was an unsighted a one-sided deal mm-hmm. which is a story in itself but anyway that's, that's what that began then I would say the dissolution of the, the company because uh, uh, at that time I couldn't continue in good faith to either be on their board or in fact uh, be it be it Chiron because things began to happen and so within three years I think you were out of Chiron you you yeah. re, you left the whole thing completely yeah yeah and then so Chiron I mean for for listeners went on to be bought the rest of from the rest of Novartis for yeah. five point one billion or something which would have a ten billion dollar valuation so they for yeah they got the five point one for at that time they owned uh, a good share of the company already right. Yeah. So it was. They bought the stub. Yeah. They bought whatever's left, and that was, you know, the end of independent Chiron. But what a legacy, you know, left behind. That was the end of it, unfortunately. So what did you do when you left Chiron then? So, I began then setting up projects that I thought I dealt with the issue of innovation. Biotech companies intrinsically are risky ventures, especially all the interesting ones, mm-hmm. and if you look at the the route either with a venture with a company that's supporting it they have their own narrow interests if you have venture company venture company support they want to get out as soon as possible right and the impracticality is that you can't predict either that it's going to work or the time frame particularly the time frame and uh, Fred Frank has some remarkable illustrations of this kind of thing. So I had the idea over time, I, I, I started with uh, just a, a single company. I had two basic interests that I thought were unusual and that needed development. One, one was uh, taking off from diagnostics. It's the issue of information. We discovered uh, with HIV, that when there was a big HIV meeting, we decided to send out some CDs to give information. 
We printed 5,000, they were gone the first day. So I established a group within Chiron Diagnostics for informatics. When we sold the diagnostic business to Bayer, why, they didn't either know or could use that. So I began taking that group on the outside to do, first of all, a project called Imetricus. And the general idea was to get information from diagnostics, provide the information broadly to doctors, patients, and so on. Just now, that company is, after all these years, is flourishing, and I'm so part of it, and we got something. But it was everybody was interested, but the, but the industry is not ready for it. And then I became interested in producing proteins in plants, because one of the biggest problems was uh, in the industry uh, was making proteins. And if you had to do it in fermentation facilities, the costs were always going to be high and so on. But what about those products that you need in metric ton quantities and or could be eaten? Yep. So we started a project with a guy who had been involved with me uh, in the cloning of insulin. And then after that, uh, I got the general idea of making a consortium. Synergenics. And Synergenics is the consortium. And uh, we've had three companies that we've moved that haven't gone anywhere, but we now have, have a great company in Switzerland uh, that's based on cloning memory B cells from humans. You can get the whole repertoire and select antibodies. So we have uh, now in clinical trials uh, with partners an antibody that neutralizes all the flu. We have another one against cytomegalovirus. We have another one against Ebola that's being developed, another one against MERS, and so on. So it's a very nice technology, and, and uh, we're going to move this to the United States and go public with huh. it. What's the name of it? The name of it is Humabs. Humabs, oh yeah. Yeah. I've heard of it. Then we have uh, two other projects that I'm really excited about, both of them chemical projects. Uh, one of them having to do with the metabolic syndrome, and there we have a proprietary target, uh, the knockout of which gives no phenotype unless you feed a high-fat diet, or and then animals are don't get fat, they don't get diabetes when they're programmed, so it's a very good one. We have a small molecule drug that's ready to go into clinical trials. I'm quite excited about it. And then we have another one that deals with inflammation, especially the inflammation that, de- that is oriented toward macrophages. And we have some exciting, uh, an exciting project with that, that, that we're going to go forward in the clinic w- as well. And we think there's, both of these have rather blo- broad indications. I was going to ask you, you know, if you still come in, do you come into this office every day? Five days a week? Not every day, but five days a week? Seven days a week. You still do? Yeah. Well, I, I have one company in China, the, the, the uh, diagnostics company that I'm just saying. So I go over to China frequently, and I go to the other. I have a manufacturing company in Amsterdam, so the old Chiron Manufacturing Group. 
that deals with vaccines, and then I have the Humabs in Switzerland, so I, I travel a lot. I see. Okay. But so, but so you're saying seven days a week you're still in touch with biotech to some degree. You're either coming in here or you're. Yeah. Do you have any other pastimes? I, I have a lot of passions, but I, it's hard to say. It's hard to define passion quantitatively in relationship. Here, I have a commitment. Right. Uh, not just to the products, but to the concept, because I'm convinced this is the way to perpetuate innovation. I'm primarily targeting on compounds that can be sold in 80% of the world at a profit. And I want that concept to be perpetuated. So that's an obligation that I have. Uh, but beyond that, yes, for sure. I mean, I like the mountains. I like, I like music. I like I'm involved in a hell of a project here trying to keep the, the San Francisco Warriors from, from destroying this area of the city. Oh, because they're going to move? I forgot they're going to move them into the... That's right. You cannot believe. You're against it. All right. Yeah. So I, I have a lot... I, I want UCSF to be uh, a great school. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is for sure. Um, so thank you so much for the time and for meeting with me. Well, thank you for coming. Honestly, it's been fun talking to you, and I have no idea what the hell you're going to be doing with this. <laughs> I'll, I'll figure it out. <laughs> well, that's the end of that, your first-rounders podcast with Bill Rutter. Uh, he's a lovely man, and we had a great conversation. I feel like he has forgotten more about biotech than I will ever know. It's, uh, it's amazing. Thank you, Bill, for taking the time to meet with me. Thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of this music. Thank you to listeners. What happens when this podcast is finished? Well, it goes into our archives. Who else is in our archives? Well, Una Ryan is in there. Rachel King, we just had her in. She's in there. George Ancopoulos, great podcast. And many more. We've been doing these for years now. There's a nice collection in there. They're all free. You can stream them. You can download them. Um, you can sign up for our feed. You can find these on iTunes, Stitcher, everywhere else that you normally find your podcasts. Uh, listen as you please. Anything else? Yes. If you have comments on this podcast or about Nature Biotech in general, find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. Right. And with that, I have now basically plugged our blog, our Twitter stream, and this podcast. So that's it. I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 
Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.